What is up? So today, finally going to get to the transparency of evil. Um, now, before I get into this, I want to share a nice, funny little story. I don't know if I've shared it before, but I was first made aware of this at um, Baudrillard Conference uh, in Oxford in the September. And Richard Smith shared this, this funny, funny story about Baudrillard, where after he died, this man who lived down the road from Baudrillard went uh went to Baudrillard's late uh uh widow i guess um and said hey i have all these photos of Baudrillard <laughs> which is extremely creepy but this guy would see who he didn't know to be Baudrillard or didn't know what Baudrillard did in his life but would see this old man every day walk down the road perhaps not every day but some days walk down the road and throw his mail in the garbage and so this guy was fascinated with this old man that would do that and take photos of him. And I just thought it was a, it's a f- funny story uh, that Baudrillard would just throw out his mail every day. Uh, but with that, you know, that being said, to jump into the transparency of evil, this is this is a pretty uh, pertinent text in Baudrillard's work, obviously, for many of those, many of you, I'm sure, know that. Uh, it's one of the texts, one of his texts that are actually taken up, I think, in university classes, in whatever department, you know, English departments, um, maybe sociology, but I somehow doubt it. Um, yeah, it, it's one of his works that are taken the most seriously, and it's one of those that are, it's fairly accessible. And I say that to mean two different things. Reading it without understanding the rest of Baudrillard's work can still allow someone to understand what is going on. So while it, it's still difficult, someone can read it and still get something out of it. I think that someone who is more versed in Baudrillard's work, especially how it develops across time, would have a very different kind of understanding of it. So for that reason, before I kind of jump into it, I want to reiterate one or two ideas from some previous texts. Firstly, from the perfect crime when Baudrillard makes a distinction between what he calls a conflictual reality and a non-contradictory reality. So this is a very important distinction because for Baudrillard, simulation nor reality are things that are in and of themselves problematic. It's only when they take on a certain character that they become problematic or they become oppressive. So for Baudrillard, he makes the distinction as being one between a conflicting reality, in the case of reality, or a non-contradictory reality. So a conflicting reality allows for problems. It allows for negativity. It allows for, you know, I guess kind of um, you know, that, that sort of encapsulates it. Uh, whereas a non-contradictory reality is a kind of perfectly kind of whitewashed, um, I guess, end to all evil you know, kind of setting up what this book is about here, kind of end to all evil, end to all things bad, right? Which is, for Baudrillard, probably the thing that worries him the most. So again, or not again, but we could think of one of his passages from Fatal Strategies when he says that he fears not terrorism nearly as much as he fears a state capable of eradicating it. So these are some kind of important ideas, and of course... 
jumping into this book without understanding the three um, three degrees of simulation, it w- would be incredibly difficult because he proposes a fourth. So this is the first time that he gives us this this idea of the fourth stage of the simulacrum, um, you know, in 91, right? So he'd been writing now for 20, 27 years, I guess. Well, longer than that, but since his first book. So he begins this book talking about the orgy, right? So what comes after the orgy? So he says, the orgy in question was the moment when modernity exploded upon us, the moment of liberation in every sphere. So that's one of the things that, you know, he he is kind of alluded to throughout all his work, his fear of having things become kind of hyper-present, right? So we think of Baudrillard and we think of the hyper-real, I think we can also think of that as being the hyper-present, where everything is made immediately available to us, all our desires have been realized, and we kind of live in a in a Huxleyan, um, in, you know, kind of brave new world situation where there is no, I guess, seduction. There is no more um, desire in a, in a, you know, the way that Baudrillard conceives of it. So seduction for those that don't know, is that which opposes, for Baudrillard, it opposes seduction, or, or sorry, it, it opposes production. Seduction is that which maintains a certain degree of illusion and a certain degree of um, the unknown, or I guess the kind of mystery of the world. That is because seduction, and etymologically we can understand it as from the old French, is to divert from one's path. It rests people from their respective positions and throws them, it kind of casts them into the unknown, where they can then become something else or change or anything like that. So there's a distinction to be drawn here between how Baudrillard kind of conceives of seduction and thinkers like Deleuze and Guattari imagine desire or desiring machines, where when Deleuze and Guattari in A Thousand Plateaus kind of uh, lay out a call to arms for the reader, saying, like, deterritorialize yourself, you know, remove your face kind of things, um, Baudrillard is, says that no, no one can actually seduce or, or take on seduction as though it was a force to be mobilized. Seduction is something that kind of happens to you. You can't just... Uh, taken on because for him that would just be another mode of production that would just be another realization of a kind of um, a moment of modernity in this kind of hyper individualistic you know world mindset that we've kind of globalized mindset that we've taken on so the orgy is then the end of seduction the or- orgy at least for now we can understand it as being the realization of all things, removing the possibility of illusion or mystery from entering the world. So he's, and you know, so many people read Baudrillard in so many different ways, but they're always kind of on the periphery. There's always hope in Baudrillard. They're always kind of, uh, he, he kind of undercuts his own kind of cautionary tales by saying something like, seduction can never be destroyed or seduction never, you know, never goes away. The illusion will always be there. Mystery will always be there in some form or other. So, you know, so many people would come out, are very quick in saying Baudrillard is like a nihilist or pessimist or there's no hope and, 
all we can do is essentially accept the system we're in or anything like that. Where personally, I see nothing of the sort. In fact, Baudrillard is a rather optimistic thinker because, as he says when he speaks about the orgy, that there's that woman that says, you know, whispers in the man's ear, what are you doing after the orgy? So he says there is retained in that moment, even in the most kind of hyper-real experience, in the case of the orgy here, uh, there is still kind of the, the glimmerings of seduction, of how it has maintained itself in some form, allowing for a kind of, you know, imaginative possibility or unimaginative in that it cannot be really conceived. Now, with that being said, he he obviously has some rather pessimistic um, outlooks. And please, I don't want it to be uh, a clear cut. He's an optimist or he's a nihilist or anything like that. I think that he certainly oscillates between the two. And for me, I just tend to be more of an optimistic reader. So we get we get the glimmer or we get kind of a sense of his pessimism here when he says we may pretend to carry on in the same direction accelerating but in reality we are accelerating in a void because all the goals of liberation are already behind us so when he's speaking about liberation he's speaking about it in terms of sexual liberation in the libera um, sexual liberation the liberation of the working class liberation of you know identity or anything like that he says we are ultimately free to be whoever we want but of course, this is a kind of freedom that is that is mediated by you know multinational uh, corporations or by our uh, confinement to a sort of internet, you know, media sphere or anything like that that we have to take into account, right? So it's kind of the McLuhan McLuhanian uh, medium is the message type thing. So what then, or how do we figure in this new stage of simulation? Well, he gives us a, a kind of long um, definition of it or a kind of long mapping of it. So he says, let me introduce a new particle into the microphysics of simulacra. That language is really interesting, and we'll talk about it more later. For after the natural commodity and structural stages of value comes the fractal stage. The first of, three, of these stages had a natural referent and value developed on the basis of a natural use of the world. The second was founded on a general equivalence, and value developed by reference to a logic of the commodity. The third is governed by a code, and value develops here by reference to a set of models. At the fourth, the fractal, or viral, or radiant stage of value, there is no point of reference at all and value radiates in all directions, occupying all interstices without reference to anything whatsoever by virtue of pure contiguity or contiguity. Okay, so this demands a whole lot of clarification, and I obviously can't get into it all because it would demand going back to symbolic exchange and death and simulacra and simulation. So for those that um, or perhaps it's jumping into this text because you have to, or this video here, and you you have to read it for class or something like that. Um, you might find yourself a little confused, and what would help is to go to specifically, um, if you want to go through it through my stuff here, or if you want to look it up online. The books you want to look at are Symbolic Exchange and Death, and Simulacra and Simulation, or 
there's another little book titled Simulations that compiles the one chapter from Symbolic, Symbolic Exchange and Death and the one chapter from Simulacra and Simulation that both talk about the three stages of, of the simulacrum. So that's a kind of quick way to get into that. But what I will say here, and what is exceptionally important, is that when Baudrillard says that the first three stages were occupied with a kind of natural referent, we have to be very careful as to not believe that Baudrillard is advocating for a kind of transcendent reality that is simply obfuscated, that's kind of obscured by simulation. Everything is always already simulation for Baudrillard. And this is how he's, you know, certainly Kantian in this sense, where because everything is mediated by our perceptions of it, everything is mediated by the world as perception, we can never actually get to a kind of thing in itself, right? Nothing has a kind of transcendent, um, you know, real value. It is always mediated to some extent by our, you know, biological limitations, that is, you know, how we don't actually see the thing in the world. We see our brain's perception of the thing in the world. So when he refers to a natural referent, it is still a simulated natural referent. Simulation is always already present. So when he speaks about it in terms of the fourth stage, where there is no longer an attachment to this natural reference, I want to bring us back to how I started this video, speaking about his distinction between non-contradictory and conflictual reality where I believe we can say the same thing about simulation where this kind of natural simulation is one that he applauds but it is not one that you know is not without its own faults whereas now we see a simulation that is perfect it has absolutely no attachment to a, a possibility of confliction to the possibility of evil, to the possibility of negativity, to anything like that. Rather, what we are seeing is the transparency of evil, where evil is, you know, made wholly uh, apparent. It is, it can then be consumed, and you know, um, can be made a part of everything else. Where there's a kind of homogenization of the world to some extent. That is the simulation he's referring to here the one developing in the fourth stage, one that is, is not necessarily a breach or a move away from reality, but is, the of course, the more real than real, right? Or the more real, then the more real, then the more real, then the more real. So we then, as humans, come to resemble what he calls integrated circuits, right? Where there's a kind of... Um, kind of machinic enslavement to the the kind of computer network where we could think of the relationship between the internet and globalization how these two things certainly work hand in hand um, we could see the human kind of disappearing into those flows into those networks and are then able to kind of exist everywhere at every time so there's that degree of transparency and this is certainly apparent when it comes to various um, when it comes to various uh, kind of paranoid, infused internet uh, personalities who say that, you know, we're being watched by the government or anything like that. For Baudrillard, I think quite simply, he'd say, you already give up all of your information willingly 
on various social media. Like there's absolutely no need for people to be wiretapping you or kind of uh, getting into your personal conversations or anything like that. You already give yourself up to the public sphere. Everything is public at this point. There is no kind of there is no possibility of escaping it because we subscribe to these kind of dominant codes which are governed by transparency, right? The idea that you must always be apparent, you must always be present. So for him, he puts it this way. He says, could it be that all systems, all individuals harbor a secret urge to be rid of their ideas or their own essences so as to be able to proliferate everywhere? And this kind of analysis uh, is... is um, he brings it up at other points later on when he speaks about uh, diseases, specifically cancer and AIDS, and how these two diseases are uh, extensions of our kind of cultural logic of proliferation or of a kind of, um, yeah, proliferation or emancipation, where he says that cancer, how it is the proliferation, at least how he understands it, the proliferation of cells shares an affinity with this system of proliferation. So what he says is that when a living form becomes disordered, when, as in cancer, a genetically determined set of rules ceases to function, the cells begin to proliferate chaotically. Just as some biological disorders indicate a break in the genetic code, so the present disorder in art may be interpreted as a fundamental break in the secret code of aesthetics. And art is something that's kind of... he's. He's certainly not an art historian, um, and he, he has that book, The Conspiracy of Art, which doesn't really talk about art all that much. He just praises Andy Warhol, um, but this, this certainly demands some clarification. So Baudrillard general, generally looks down on modern art, saying like it's not, you know, it's a product of our kind of shitty times that we live in, except for Andy Warhol, who he says uh, was effective at becoming a machine. So Baudrillard applauds Warhol by not trying to be a kind of a real thing in a world that has lost reality. Baudrillard believes that Andy Warhol was someone that was able to see what kind of world he was in and then able to emulate that. So art, as he says about it today, where, well, I'll just read what he says, whereas art was once essentially a utopia, that is to say, ultimately unrealizable. Today, this utopia has been realized. Thanks to the media, computer science, and video technology, everyone is now a potential creator. You know, which is certainly true. Like, all, you go to any kind of urban, so, shouldn't even say that, everywhere, there are so many people desiring to be made, you know, Instagram famous or something like that via their artwork or via their photography is a big one. Everyone's a photographer. Everyone's a professional photographer now. And, and Baudrillard was a photographer, actually. So he <laughs> he participated in this just as much as anyone else. And it would be very wrong to think that Baudrillard somehow stood outside of all of this. Um, but yeah, and he, and he goes on to say about that, that secretly we are all iconoclasts. Not in the sense that we destroy images, but in the sense that we manufacture a profusion of images in which there is nothing to see. So it is not as though the content itself is devoid of meaning, right? Any single given image can be one that is, is riddled with meaning. 
But when there's a profusion of images, it kind of follows the supply and demand, um, you know, logic. If you flood the market with images, they, they lose their meaning in that way. If there are images everywhere, there are images nowhere. But even with this analysis, like I said before, there are always kinds of returns to illusion or to mystery where Baudrillard says, you know, following his kind of tirade against uh, modern art, he says that our images are like icons. They allow us to go on believing in art while eluding the question of its existence. So, perhaps, we ought to treat all present-day art as a set of rituals and for ritual use only. Perhaps we ought to consider art solely from an anthropological standpoint without reference to any aesthetic judgment whatsoever. The implication is that we have returned to the cultural stage of primitive societies. So in that way, it's not as though we've totally gone beyond anything that has an attachment to what I will kind of naively consider reality, that is primitive quote-unquote societies, um, because Baudrillard is signaling, you know, a kind of formative return to that stage, right? At the level of appearance, we have in, in part returned to that stage, which again makes it difficult to know, you know, where does Baudrillard exactly stand in all of this? Because immediately, almost immediately following this point, Baudrillard asks the intriguing question, uh, is the human in modern day society simply a, another form of the human or have they completely altered and become a machine? Or, as he says, uh, in, the, in the present day, the question goes as follows, am I a man or just a potential clone? Which is certainly the case if we consider art, at least how he understands it, where everyone considers themselves a creator. He would, Baudrillard would then kind of syllogistically suggest that, yeah, because everyone considers themselves to be a, in this same position, to take on this kind of same essence or to take on the same form, they are, in that sense, clones of one another. So to curb this, we come up with, there are a few strategies that we employ in order to convince ourselves of our humanity, right? So then we, we surround ourselves with stuff, things like pornography that convince us of there being like, a you know, an innate uh, biological human function, we surround ourselves with various, you know, internet uh, quasi-intellectuals saying that things like biology are nat natural, or that sex and gender are natural, or any kind of jargon like that, which serves the end of uh, kind of um, inoculating us from realizing the extent to which we have been immersed in simulation, or immersed in hyper-reality, or immersed in the simulacrum, in favor of rendering us kind of docile to or rendering us subordinate to a kind of biological imperative or to anything like that that we can cathartically kind of give ourselves over to it, 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 where these kinds of discourses serve as vessels for us to displace our anxieties about the world and to then allow us to fall back on various axiomatics presuppositions about the human, about nature, about reality, that are unchanging, that are taken as a priori, as things that are universal, which gives us a certain degree of comfort. But I believe, and I think that Baudrillard is really correct, and you got to kind of read between the lines, I think, to get to this, or so it's just me, I guess. But I think Baudrillard is really on point when he lays out the various ways in which people 
try to convince themselves of their own humanity, right? So they are so that they are not simply a clone, or as he says it, not simply a satellite, right? Where humans have kind of satellized them, satellitized themselves into outer space, not being part of a world anymore. And this is just one of the things that can be observed with various television programs like Black Mirror, for instance, where the I you know, I would say doing like a Baudrillardian reading of Black Mirror, uh, this show serves as kind of strategic purpose of convincing us that the loss of humanity is kind of always on the horizon, where it's as though this kind of loss of humanity didn't didn't occur, you know, 300 years ago with the Enlightenment and the kind of destruction of illusion. No, it's with, you know, us owning little, um, you know, technical gadgets that's going to take us away from humanity. It's like... And people like these kinds of things because it gives us a very easy way to understand uh, this loss of humanity or this kind of a loss of reality or anything like that, which is, you know, really, it's kind of naive and it's, it's, uh, it's just not all that critical. But of course, with that being said, Baudrillard still has a lot to say about virtual technologies or anything like that, where he says, thanks to the machinery of the virtual, all your problems are over. You are no longer either subject nor object, no longer either free nor alienated, and no longer either one of the other, neither one nor the other. You are the same, and enraptured by the commutations of that sameness. So here we hear the echoes of his uh, ecstasy of communication, right? So we like to get lost in communication, how it kind of puts us in a kind of state of um, kind of tranquility. There's a better word, but it's evading me. Uh, where communication becomes something for the sake of itself. We communicate not to, you know, not as a mode of um, betterment for society or community or anything like that. We communicate for the sake of communicating, right? So it's about making oneself. Um, making oneself available to the world. So you are, we are no longer alienated, right? When he says that, and he, there, there's another place where he says it quite eloquently. Uh, we are no longer alienated because we are given over to the complete spectacle of society, where the problem is not in the Marxist sense anymore, uh, alienating one from oneself or one from one's labor, or one from one's, the fruits of one's labor, but actually alienating uh, is, is something of the past. We are now wholly present to all things. We are now wholly unalienated. We are wholly connected to the things we surround ourselves with, right? We, with our phone or, you know, computer or whatever, because they operate to some extent to connect us to that world, to keep us in a state of perpetual communication, which has supplanted the need to have a kind of, you know, and I use this term hesitating, I hesitate to use this term uh, to kind of to have a kind of real connection to our products or, or to anything like that. But then he has a kind of interesting little um, little passage here about art artificial intelligence, where he says that artif artificial intelligence is devoid of intelligence because it is devoid of artifice. In this sense, they may be said to be virtuous as well as virtual. They can never succumb to their own object. They are immune even to the seduction of their own knowledge. Their virtue resides in their transparency, their functionality, their absence of passion and artifice. Artificial intelligence is a celibate, 
machine. So when he says that uh, it is devoid of artifice, it's a very difficult idea. Um, I think in a sense, because for him, ultimately, uh, artificiality is what is the primary condition of existence. That is the only place where intelligence, being a wholly human thing, can exist. Where intelligence it can only be occupied by the human that is conflictual. The non-contradictory human, because it is devoid of artifice, cannot have um, intelligence. So therefore, the non-contradictory artificial intelligence, you know, one that is perfectly coded, perfectly mapped, perfectly understood, cannot then take on intelligence because intelligence demands a kind of spontaneity, demands creativity, it demands, um, I guess, a certain degree of doubt. I don't know of any artificial intelligence that can instill doubt yet, but maybe one day. Um, which, which is interesting because so the artificial intelligence, at least in like cinema, in the dystopian imaginations of it, um, is something that reaches a certain degree of perfection. And it is through its perfection, through its ability to eradicate completely, that it attains its kind of power, that it, it that it opposes the human. But I don't like... It seems as though uh, if the intelligent, quote-unquote, intelligent machines were to attain a certain degree of intelligence capable of doing any such thing, they would actually need to take on a certain degree of um, conflictuality, as we understand it through Baudrillard here. They would actually need to take on a kind of abstractness, a kind of uh, humanity, right, or a kind of artificiality of their own intelligence and I'm perhaps I'm going down a kind of I'm thinking aloud here I should I, sh I should I shouldn't do that I'll stick to the script uh, maybe someone got something out of that little rambling but I'll jump back into this here so to give us a better idea of how Baudrillard considers um, the kind of strategies we employ be they scientific or discursive or anything like that to convince us of a kind of a real human essence uh, he says that he, he says, he speaks about that as follows. By breaking the body down into organs and functions, biophysio and anatomical, Jesus, science had already begun a process of analytical dissection of which micromolecular genetics is merely a logical extension, though at a much higher level of abstraction and simulation. At the nuclear level of the command cell, directly at the level of the genetic code, and it, is, and it is around genetics that this whole phantasmagoria is organized. The functional and mechanist view still treated each bodily organ as a partial and differentiated prosthesis. Simulation was already part of the picture, but simulation of a traditional kind, right? So this emphasizes the idea that there, there's not just kind of one form of simulation and it is oppressive. Simulation takes on all these kinds of different forms. It either works in the betterment of humans or the uh, kind of destruction of humanity. And then he gives us a kind of interesting look into how this uh, motivates racism, where he says that much the same for racism, which has also become an imminent, viral, and everyday reality. The fact is that the scientific and rational critique of racism is purely a formal one, 
which demolishes the arguments from biology but remains caught in the racist trap because it addresses a biological illusion only and fails to deal with itself, or sorry, and it fails to deal with biology itself qua illusion. So to all those kinds of, you know, nutbags out there, the Stefan Molyneux of the world who think that racism comes down to level of biology, you know, very extremely problematically, perhaps I shouldn't say nutbag. I won't, I won't edit that out, but I retract that, saying that these people who say that uh, biology is something that is, um, or racism is something that is natural or anything like that, and to those people that come back and say, coming at these arguments with kind of truth claims, like saying that biology actually says other things, Baudrillard says, okay, that's fine, right? You've kind of demolished that racism, which is, of course, a good thing, but we still may maintain in that theorization the illusion that biology somehow transcends um, simulation or transcends um, anything else, or it's a kind of transcendent realm that gives us, that taps us into a kind of reality, which for Baudrillard is a big no-no because, and this is how I understand it, biology can never encapsulate the totality of humankind. Rather, and we can understand this certainly better through Foucault, biology is something that is, um, has embedded within it operations of exclusion that omit certain bodies from entering it and kind of homogenize this idea of a human body that naturalize it to some extent. And by naturalizing it, it kind of galvanizes it and crystallizes it, freezes it in time and space, which is a an example of a of an oppressive form of simulation as Baudrillard describes it. What is threatened in this moment is the possible realization of another, an other, which is totally necessary for Baudrillard because he he works very much in the domain of dualities. Where there's one interview with him. Crap, I can't remember which. I think it's with François Libanet. I think, but I could be wrong about that, or it could be Philip Pizzi, one of those people, uh, where the one of the interviewers ask him, why is it that you maintain things like binaries? Because we know that these are kind of oppressive frameworks, to which Baudrillard says that he doesn't think that either one of uh, the constitutive components of a binary should be fixed in time and space. What he sees as necessary is that there are distinctions in the world. He thinks that it is necessary that there are always a kind of antagonism at play, where this antagonism is necessary to wrest each respective position of the binary from their own essence to drive it into something new. So the examples he gives are things like hot and cold, where you can't understand what hot is unless you understand what cold is, and by extension, once we have established these distinctions and how one is fundamentally predicated upon the other, so we're dealing with deconstruction in this way to some extent, which Pilger doesn't really ever take up. Uh, in fact, he kind of he criticizes it. What we see in that is the possibility, at least for Baudrillard, that the definition of hotness will always be um, will um, will always be negotiated. The same goes for coldness because they are not predicated on their fundamental essences or their kind of unchanging 
characteristics, but are always determined by the other. So he thinks that the, this, these dualities are necessary or these binaries are necessary to allow for these kinds of developments across time. With that being said, of course, there are problems associated with binaries, undoubtedly, and it's, it's a shame that for him he only thinks about them in relation to binaries and why they can't take on other forms. Is It seems a little bit reductive to me, but I do, at, to defend um, his claims here, I think that he makes a very good point about the way that binaries work to seduce things from their respective positions and to continually propel them into new spaces. So this outlines the importance of the other, right? So of this, he says that man and machine has become isomorphic and indifferent to each other. Neither is other to the other. The computer has no other. That is why the computer is not intelligent. Intelligence comes to us from the other always. Because intelligence is that thing that can only be measured, not as a thing in itself, but by being in relation to something else. So the computer in its perfect operability, in its perfect functioning or whatever, it cannot be considered intelligence because that is only understood as a kind of perfection in itself. It's a kind of globalized understanding or what will soon be totally globalized understanding of what constitutes intelligence. You know, the kind of Jeopardy syndrome where we mistake someone's ability to iterate facts. Don't get me wrong, I love Jeopardy. Uh, iterate facts or to kind of regurgitate facts as being intelligence where these people... There are, of course, many of them are probably very intelligent, but it doesn't actually signify their intelligence by being able to regurgitate facts. It propels them into the domain of kind of computer likeness, where following Baudrillard's understanding of it, because it has no other, because there's no negotiation there, it is not at all intelligent. So this is why for him, the thing like the double or the unheimlich kind of uh, has is holds such an important place in, you know, Western culture, Western you know literary tradition or philosophical tradition, anything like that. Where he says that of all the prostheses that punctuate the history of the body, the double is doubtless is doubtless the most ancient. The double, however, is not properly speaking a prosthesis at all. Rather, it is an imaginary figure like the soul, the shadow, or the mirror image which haunts the subject as his other, causing him to be himself while at the same time never seeming like himself. So it is that double that is necessary to call attention or to disturb the reality of the original, right? To disturb the idea that the original is wholly unique, that the original is wholly themselves, and to instead take them from that position of subjectivity into a certain degree of objectivity, where they become other to themselves. So this is really apparent within his um, whole discussion of seduction in relation to um, Svitvinesien, uh, who wrote that? Uh, Sophie Kahl. So Sophie Kahl uh, wrote a piece about how uh, she followed someone for like a month or something. And Bodhi like literally followed them like through the streets and lost them and had to go find them again. Could be longer than that and i could have the uh the temporality a little off for the length of time baudrillard takes that idea up to suggest that following someone is actually a very nice illustration of seduction 
because both people are undergoing a kind of loss of subjectivity where the person being followed, believing themselves to be working their own trajectory that is wholly their own, has that disturbed by having someone follow them because it takes them out of that subjectivity, implying that it can be perfectly copied, can be perfectly replicated, you know, taking it away from its originality, right? It's kind of reproducibility, destroying its aura. And then the person following, it's pretty, I think, self-explanatory. They are not determining where they are going by themselves. They are being determined by another. So in that moment, the one discussed by Sophie Cal that Baudrillard takes up, subjectivity is kind of overthrown in favor of an objectivity in the seductive moment. So the double serves this function by resting the original subject outside of themselves, implying that they can be fully copied, that they can be fully uh, replicated, taking them outside of the appreciation of them or removing them from their own appreciation of themselves towards a kind of unknown sphere of objectivity where they become susceptible to the whims of whatever is taking command of them. And yeah, and, and this all really comes down to the transparency of evil. So he's rethinking the uh, banality of evil as it was conceived of by Hannah Arendt, uh, where evil is, is simply that thing that is um, common, right? Evil is not something, uh, is not a spectacular um, kind of extraordinary thing. It actually exists in day-to-day people, are very susceptible to evil. And Baudrillard, I think, in a sense, takes it up by saying that evil is something that can be observed in transparency where transparency, having things become totally apparent, hyper-present, or hyper-real, is a mode of evil. And it should be challenged. It shouldn't be immediately accepted as, you know, a natural thing to be seen or want to be seen or anything like that, but marks a kind of evil moment, something that's not very good. So that reminds me of another passage somewhere, and I can't, can't remember where. He has like 40 books, so please excuse me for not remembering exactly where he says everything. But he he says that the good or goodness is when there is the maintenance of good and evil. When good and evil still exist, where evil has not been totally eradicated. Evil, on the other hand, is when there is just good. When there has been an effective homogenization of all things good eradicating evilness kind of putting us into a kind of new world order kind of globalized system that is wholly oppressive and yeah i don't don't know if there's much more than that this is a pretty short book i think i was able to get quite a bit out of it here but yeah for those that actually tuned into this i hope that it was good um i hope that if anyone who's listening to this to avoid having to read the book um i would say certainly go and read it my arguments are obviously prejudiced, and I am by no means the authority on these things. Baudrillard is the authority on these things. Go read the book. If you can read it in French, read it in French. Um, but, you know, if you can't do that, I hope that this was somewhat helpful. And for those that disagree with me or have any comments or anything, I'd love to hear them. But for now, 